All right, we are working through the Westminster Confession of Faith. We are now on chapter 10, and we're dealing with of effectual calling. Now, you may notice that we've transitioned from the theology section, the description of God, to the soteriology section, the description of biblical salvation. And, uh, and we're in that. We talked about, uh, the, the, in fact, last week of free will was actually the entryway into the salvation portion. Today we come to the wonder, wonderful doctrine of effectual calling. And I only have four paragraphs this time. And here's the first one. It's the main paragraph. All those whom God has predestined unto life and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace. You know, a couple of times we've, we've, we as a congregation have read that paragraph. And I have to say, you know, we do our confession of the faith. We do the Nicene Creed, a fair amount. We do the Apostles' Creed. And we'll do a paragraph from the Westminster Confession. And almost every time we do a paragraph from Westminster Confession, I'll turn to Chad or one of the interns and I'll go, man, that was good stuff. That was good stuff. And I remember one time we read this one not that long ago. And I went, man, that was that was well done, boys. That was really well said, oh, 16th century divine. Ah, it's great stuff. Let's look at it. God's effectual call. Here's the basic doctrine, that the elect are called by God to salvation. And when we say effectually called, we mean that God calls them in such a way that by means of that call, he effectually, he actually saves them. He brings them to himself by means of the effectual call. So we're looking at the nature of Christian conversion. That's what we're talking about here. Now we know that God calls people who don't respond. But when people are converted, it is because God... the, the chief actor in their conversion is not them, it's God. And he has done something to them. He has called them savingly and effectually by his power, and he has brought them to himself. Now, who are those persons? Well, it is the elect. And, and, and here's the logic of it. I'll, I'll read you some verses that show it's not just logic, it's the Bible. But God chose a certain people in eternity past, that's the doctrine of election, certain persons were given by the Father to the Son in eternity past. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy in his his sight. Christ then died for those people, which of course makes perfect sense. God gave a people to the Son. The Son came into the world to do the atoning work. He did it for the people whom God gave him. And so this is why in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, the night before his arrest, he says, you have given me a people. And he actually says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you've chosen out of the world. Christ's atoning work was for his people. Well, it then follows that the Holy Spirit will call which persons? The persons for whom Christ died, whom the Father gave to him in election 
in eternity past. And so the, uh, the Holy Spirit applies God's will and Christ's work to these persons and to none others. Think of Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Now that's the saving call. That's the effectual call. Who did he call? According to the Bible, he called those whom God predestined. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. I've always loved the line in Acts 13.48. It's a record of the preaching in Pisidian Antioch. And it just talks about Paul preaching and it's not, he's not right. Luke is not writing reformed theology. He's just, it's kind of the way apostles talk. And those who were appointed to eternal life believed. Oops. So there's Paul preaching in what modern day Turkey. And certain people believed according to the book of Acts. Who are the people who believed? Those who were appointed to eternal life, and their belief is the result of the effectual calling. Now, this, this is a good opportunity. We never want to miss an opportunity to embed the doctrine of the Trinity. Because the Trinity is one God and three persons. Everything they do, they do together. But there are certain aspects of their work in which one member of the Trinity is in the foreground. And in particular, the Father ordains. The Son accomplishes The Spirit applies. God chose us in Christ. He ordained that we would be saved. Christ then came into the world to accomplish the work of our redemption. But then we had to be incorporated into that work. How? Through faith. And therefore the Holy Spirit applies what the Father appointed, what the Son accomplished to the persons for whom they were done. This is Trinitarian theology from the Bible. Now, so effectual calling is God, through the word, actually bringing people to salvation. So it is through the word of God. Now, I should have, I should have put a slide in here. We distinguish between the general call and the effectual call. The general call is what I give every week. I preach the word. And you, you parents are giving the general call to your children with your ABC Bible story book. And with your family devotions and your Bible reading and you're giving the general call when you, when God answers your prayer and you get the opportunity to tell a coworker the gospel message of Jesus. The general call is the witness of the church to the gospel by the word of God. And the general call is not able to save anyone. Why? Because they're totally depraved. Because they're spiritually dead. Because the man without the spirit is not, is not able to receive the things of the spirit of God. So here's the bad news for people like, I mean, this is my full-time vocation. I'm doing my work. I'm pouring myself into a, a, an activity that is unable to save anyone. The general call. But here's the good news. God, for the sake of the elect, enters into the general call. And he exerts his power through the Holy Spirit, and he makes it effectual. Now, this happened when you were converted. So I was converted later in life. I was age 30, so I remember it very vividly. And I'm sitting in the church. The preacher is preaching Hosea chapter 3. I'm Gomer. And it, was a, it, it, it would have affected me in some level, but it would not have saved me. Why? Because I was spiritually dead. I had a hard heart. But God 
through the general call, through the preached word, he enters in and he brings saving grace so the person believes, is converted, and saved. So the effectual call works through the general call and exerts the power of God actually to save. So it turns out we're not wasting our time. It turns out that I'm not laboring in vain, doing something that cannot work because God enters into it at his will. And he makes it work by his power, by his grace, the effectual calling. And it is through God's word. Effectual calling, again, is the reformed understanding of conversion. God effectually calls people through the word. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. First uh, Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but through the living and abiding word of God. And so conversion takes place through the word of God. By the way, that's why we do so much Bible. This is why I preach. This is why I don't tell stories about my dog. And what a charming dog. Do we have a wonderful dog, honey? I could, I, we have a wonderful dog. Or tell stories about my children and my wife. You know, I, Sharon and I had a good week this week. This is very popular preaching. You get really large churches. If you tell stories about your kids and your stuff, people love it and you draw them in. you got a good oratorical gift and you, you know how to pause. you got the oratory going and you got the lean. But the problem is only the word of God saves. And so we preach the word. And so what do I do? I teach the Bible. I preach the word of God. Why? Because it's through not a perishable seed, not of sociology, not of manip- psychological manipulation, not of entertainment. No, it's through the living and abiding word of God. Conversion is through the word. The effectual calling is through the word by God's spirit. And so it is the spirit of God whom the father and the son send to convert the elect at a certain point in time. And God has chosen a time for each of his people to come to saving faith. And they are born again. Jesus said, you must be born again. He's talking about the effectual call. Actually, I actually think the Greek word anathen is better translated born from above. It does have an again angle to it. Born anew from above might be the right way of fully translating that. And then he says this, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. And so in a mysterious way, in a way that you cannot see, the Spirit of God attends to the ministry of the word and causes the dead to come to life. This is the effectual call. Uh, again, this is the importance of a word-centered ministry. And here's my chance to use my, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Ezekiel 37. Here is, he's at the Valley of Dry Bones. Everybody's dead. There's these bones. There's nothing. And we, by the way, we talk about America today. America is the Valley of Dry Bones. It's spiritually... I mean, what's true of Germany? Somebody pray for Germany. It, it's shockingly true of England. I, it's shocking. The spiritual, but America. Oh. And, and Jeremiah's in this valley, Ezekiel's in this valley, and it, it's symbolic. It's, it's just bleached bones, and welcome to your new congregation, Zeke. And, um, and what, prophesy, son of man. And he says, as I preached, a wind blew. And then as the word went forth, and the, and the wind's a symbol of the spirit, the, the, the bones start moving, they come together, tissue shows, forms on them. they rise up, behold, a new army, pr- uh, prophesy to the breath, 
Prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, that's the Holy Spirit, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breathe, and breathe on these slain that they may live. You know, I, I preach the Spurgeon prayer privately. Every time I preach, as I'm walking up to the pulpit, the Spurgeon prayer is, Lord, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Send thou thy Holy Spirit. Everything we do is in vain unless God should answer the prayer to attend the preaching of the word with the Holy Spirit. But you see, there's power when the Spirit attends to the ministry of the Word and there's salvation. God's saving an effectual call. Now, here's how it works according to the confession it enlightens their minds. Now, the problem is, we are, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we are not able to understand the Bible. Now, we can understand facts. Some of you might memorize some things of it, but the saving message of Jesus doesn't have anything to latch on to because we're spiritually dead. But listen to these biblical descriptions of, of, of the enlightening effect of the Holy Spirit. Paul prays in Ephesians 1, 17 to 18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's where this language comes from in the confession. God would, he would shine his light upon your heart. We believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. That's the original authorship of it. was done by the Spirit through human agency. We also believe in the illumination of the Holy Spirit. That, that it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand God's word and, and to know him. Uh, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now that's the 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It's the final statement of a passage, a paragraph, that starts that chapter about a simple ministry of God's word. Paul says, since we've received this ministry from God, we do not lose heart. We, do not use, we have renounced secret and, and underhanded ways. We don't do manipulation. We don't trim the message of the word of God. We set the truth of God before the consciences of men. But you say, oh, but, but, but Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He goes, that's true. We've got a big problem that Satan's at work in the world. But God shines his light in our hearts through the word. And, and there's a comparison to the original creation that he's making. The same God who said, let there be light, and there was light. He lets there be light in your heart, and there is light in your heart. And I love this statement, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Holy, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He spiritually and savingly enables us to understand the things of God. I think of 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand the things freely given us by God. And so it's a supernatural work of God, the effectual call, it's the beginning of it, by which people go from not being able to understand to able to understand it. Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are come. In fact, he says a few verses later, he will take the things of mine and he will declare them unto you. The Holy Spirit shines a spotlight onto Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer tells an illustration I think is very helpful about the, 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 the particular nature of the Spirit's work in illumination and effectual calling. There's a cathedral in, uh, in, in like Vancouver, Washington, I think. 
And it's a famous, it's got a big stained glass window of Jesus. And the spotlights at night are bathing the side of the window so that this stained glass window of Jesus can be seen. And he says that those spotlights are what the Holy Spirit does. It, it highlights Christ. And he says, now, if you turn and you look at the Spirit, you're actually blinded. The Spirit doesn't want us to gaze at the Spirit. The Spirit wants us to gaze at Christ. It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Uh, Packer says, you know that you're being operated on by the Holy Spirit when you are thinking much of Christ. And so he savingly does this in our lives. And here's, here's how it works. He, this is the third part. And he changes our hearts and he renews our wills. Isn't that the most wonderful thing? He gives us, you know, we just preached in Jeremiah 17, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, well, God, and God goes on and says, I search the heart. I know it. But he changes the heart. And so someone who'd been hardened in heart against the gospel, who'd spoken, I am such a person, who had spoken in retrospect, not, not so blasphemous, but vain, arrogant things about the Bible, suddenly has a change of heart about it. What's that? It's God's changing of the will. Now, I've had people, I've heard people criticize the doctrine of effectual atonement by saying that God, one version I heard was, uh, God would never violate your free will because God is a gentleman. I want to say right now in that sense, thank God that God is not a gentleman who stands by and just lets you go to hell. Uh, and it, I've, I've heard people compare it to a spiritual rape. I'm like, stop, stop. It's the sweet saving operations of God by the Spirit to change our hearts from death to life. My friends, that is not a violation. And notice the intimacy of that. God plays, in the effectual calling is not just God from afar saying, let that person be saved, and they were saved. Oh, he, he does will it. But the Holy Spirit, as it were, is the hands of God. And he puts, you think of when Jesus touched the leper and it said, be clean, and he was clean. God, by the Holy Spirit, touched your heart and what was dead came to life and your will was renewed to respond in faith. Ezekiel 36, 26 is a famous promise. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. He's speaking about the, he's prophesying this, the, the, re, the, the effectual call and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in Christ's name. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. Now, I love to cite Acts 16, 14. It's the conversion of Lydia. And again, Luke's not writing a book on Reformed theology. He's just telling the story, but this is the, but this is the apostolic doctrine. And so Paul, he, he, he lands in Philippi. Remember the, the man of Macedonia at the beginning of Acts 16? Come over and help us. So he comes on. I guess that's where the, is that where come over and help got their motto from Acts 16? It just dawns on me now, you. Anyway, the missionary group we support. And he goes over to Philippi. Remember, he'd wanted to go to Asia, but the Spirit wouldn't let him. He goes to, to Macedonia. He lands at Philippi. And as soon as he gets off the boat, there's these women praying. He goes over and he preaches to them. And here's how Lydia was converted. The Lord opened her heart, renewed her will. What had been closed was opened by God to what was said by Paul. She believed. This is what's happened in our conversion. Now, we are living in a spiritual climate that has emphasized what we do. That conversion is our act of the will. Conversion is our choosing him. Now, that is true in a derivative sense. 
But the biblical emphasis is going to be conversion is God's work. It's what he sovereignly and savingly and mightily and effectually does by the Holy Spirit to which we then respond. It's by God's almighty power. Now here's my favorite, I think it's the clearest effectual calling verse in the Bible. Matthew 9 verse 9, as the apostle Matthew records his own conversion. He's Levi the tax collector. He is the chief tax collector, which is essentially mafia boss almost, in Capernaum. You're going, isn't Capernaum like Jesus' lakeside headquarters? Yes, it is. It's where Jesus lived for quite a while. A lot of the miracles are done in and around Capernaum. He sees Jesus all the time. You get all these scenes you got from the Gospels, Jesus comes back to Capernaum. He's seen Jesus. He's heard Jesus. He doesn't care. He wants to tax Jesus. That's what he wants. He wants his money. The general call has no effect. Even Jesus' general call has no effect on him. And then the day comes and the appointing of God Where Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And I I love the brevity of this. And he said to me, said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now that's that's what we mean by effectual, almighty, sovereign. That is how you were saved. And you follow, if you saved, you follow him because he calls us to follow. And when Jesus comes, I don't care, I don't care what you thought when you went to church that night. When Jesus calls you effectually, you're going to change what you were doing. You're going to leave your nets and your fishermen's boats in the other version of it, and you're going to follow him. Um, and so the general call cannot save, but God uses a general call. In conversion, and he makes it effectual. I have a great quote from Thomas Watson about God's power. God puts forth infinite power in calling home a sinner to himself. He not only puts forth his voice, but his arm. God rides forth conquering in the chariot of his gospel. Don't you love the Puritans? I wouldn't have thought of that. God rides forth conquering in the chariot of his gospel, he conquers the pride of the heart. He tames the will which stood out as a fort royal to yield and stoop to his grace. He makes the stony heart bleed. Oh, it is a mighty call. Amen. That's, it's not our hope, by the way. One thing this means is there's no one you can write off. There's no one you can write I, I've told several times, I don't know if you've all heard, maybe you have, the story of my mother's conversion. It's a very, I don't have much to say about it because I don't know much about it. My mother's a wonderful, sweet, virtuous person, and the pride of that was keeping her from the gospel. And she was a blessing to our lives, and all our attempts to witness to her failed because she wasn't hearing it, and she didn't want to be called a sinner. And she's in a liberal Presbyterian church that preached virtue, and she had lots of that. And, you know, I, I dedicated a book to her. She did not read it, trust me. I, I checked it. It has not been opened. It was, it was in a, you know how your moms are. It's in a, it's in a place of prominence, but unopened. And uh, we gave her morning and evening one year unopened. And uh, she actually was in a coma. Uh, she was dying of cancer. And I actually spent all night praying that she wouldn't die because I thought she'd go to hell if she died. And she comes out of the coma and um, she said, you know, where, Ricky, where am I? I'm her son. She calls me Ricky. Uh, where, where am I? I told her. She said, what's happening to me? I said, Mama. You're about to die, and I so want to talk to you about Jesus. And she says to me, oh, 
I have confessed my sins and been washed clean by the blood of his cross. I'm like, oh, well, that, that thumbs up on that. I mean, <laughs> I never heard one. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, she died so quickly after that. I mean, not that day, but I never got the story. I'm looking forward to getting the story. But how does my mother, you think, well, your mother, she's a likely candidate because she was virtuous. No, the virtuous are the least likely candidates. But, but anyone can be saved. That wayward child, the prisoners in the prison, the, the abortion doctor, even you can be saved by the effectual calling of God. With the result that we come freely. So you're saying God compels us. No, he changes our hearts and then we come freely. You say, well, I came to the gospel. I chose him after he chose you. And he changed your heart. And with a new heart, you know, people say, I want to give God my heart. I remember Don Green Barnhouse's. No, do, what, what would God do with your smelly, rotten, black heart? He wants to give you a new one. And with that new heart, a renewed will, you come freely. Psalm 110.3, your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, the effectual calling. For it has been given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to also suffer for him. But, but it has been given to you to believe on him. The effectual calling makes us so that we come most freely, having been made willing. That's a great paragraph. Now, there's three other ones that are shorter. Secondly, the, and, and this paragraph is dealing with some misunderstandings. Let's, 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 let's fence off erroneous views. The effectual call is God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Now, it is a sovereign call that is not based on anything in you that makes you more likely. Just like it's just like predestination and sovereign election. It's like it's not like you're, you're like, well, why me, not them? Well, there was something in me. No, there was nothing in you, and there's no way to prepare for the effectual calling. Obviously, you have a duty to worship God. You have a, you should be reading your Bible. But unless God sovereignly comes to you, it's by free, unmerited grace alone. There is no advanced qualification or inclination. Now, I use the example in Genesis 12 of Abram. The Old Testament, Isaiah 51 does this, reflects on, you know, Abraham was actually like a really bad sinner. He was an idol worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees. That's, that's who he was. And the Lord said to him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And God made that call effectual. And that's why he went, not because there was anything better about him. The Old Testament says that explicitly. No, he was an idolater like everybody else. First Timothy 1 9, that God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our work, but according to his own purpose and grace. So if you are effectually called, you have nothing to boast about. And people will say, you Calvinists, you must be so proud. How is it proud to say, I have no merit of my own? It is sovereign, free grace to someone who had nothing in him to commend himself. It is merely that God would glorify his grace and his mercy in my life. It actually is humbling. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 to 7, 
Uh, Bible says, in the same way that God called Abraham, he calls all who become his children. This is James Boyce. God comes to us when we are hopelessly lost in sin, without knowledge of him. This is a universal fact in the spiritual biography of Christians. Now you go, what about covenant children? Covenant children, you know, I will say this, God has a tendency of making the covenant home the nursery of the elect. A, a high percentage, it turns out, of the elect are raised in Christian homes. Thank the Lord they're not all, or else I could not have been saved. I was not raised in a, in a Bible-believing home. And so, so it's not, but, 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 but even then, in the case of a child who grows up in the church and is a good son, a good daughter, and embraces the faith sincerely, they are still coming the way Abraham did. As sinners, by grace alone, with nothing in them to commend them. Uh, every, even their most righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And so we are totally depraved prior to conversion. We have no ability to contribute with God's grace until we have been sovereignly called. Jesus comes and he says, come and follow me. He exerts his power. He changes the will. He enables us. Now, once he has enabled us, then we do embrace the gospel. C.S. Lewis talks about being, you know, a totally reluctant convert. He says, I was dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. If you read his biography, that is not true. He was kicking and screaming until God changed his heart. And then he embraced it willingly. No one is kicking and screaming. I was not kicking and screaming when I, when I surrendered my life to Jesus. I was under the compulsion of a sovereign grace. Praise the Lord for that. R.C. Sproul says the unregenerate experience the outward call of the gospel. This outward call will not affect salvation unless the call is heard and embraced in faith. Effectual recalling refers to the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. The call is within. The regenerate are called inwardly. Everyone who receives the inward call of regeneration responds in faith. Leon Morris writes, It often seems to believers they are Christians because they made up their minds that this is the way they want to go. They may have indeed done this, but on Paul's view, this would only be because there has already been a divine work within them. It is important for the apostle that God is always the initiator in the work of salvation. We refer to that as monergism. We hold to a monergistic gospel. Synergism is two working together. We are not synergistically converted. We are monergistically converted. God is the sole actor. He took the initiative in sending his son to die to put away our sins. He continues with the initiative in calling us out of our self-centered lives into lives of service. Now, this chapter then becomes the occasion for one of the more interesting paragraphs in the Westminster Confession. It deals with the salvation of elect infants. Now, I believe it's true that every single member of the Westminster Assembly had lost an infant child. You know, until 100 years ago, most people had a ch- not, not just miscarriages. That's very hard. But these are children who were, they were two years old and they died. It was, or they were six months old or they, they were still born. Uh, these things happened today, but they were widespread. And so they had a pastoral need to address it. And what they're asking here is, how can, how can an infant or even a preborn child be saved when they do not have the capacity to believe? I think we'll acknowledge that a six day old baby does not have the capacity to exercise biblical faith. 
Here's their answer. And they're going to reflect generally on the scriptures. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Now notice, when they say elect infants, they're not saying who they are. They're just saying when an infant is elect... And when an in, how is a when an infant is elect, i.e., a person not capable of exercising faith, then the last statement's about people who otherwise have impairments. They may not be infants, but they have a, an impairment from exercising faith. How then are they saved? They are regenerated and saved through the Spirit in a special way, apart from faith. Let's just work through that. Uh, again, they are, they, are, they are actually not saying, this chapter is not saying that all covenant children who die are elect. Uh, although, I want to say to you that we have the strongest encouragement from Scripture. Now, I suppose most evangelicals teach. I saw Al Mohler, who I hugely respect, but I saw him teaching that all, all infants who die go to heaven. I'm sorry, but there's just no biblical warrant for that. I'd like to say there is. I'd like to give comfort. I cannot give comfort that the Scripture does not give. There is, however, enormous comfort with regard to covenant children. I am not saying that only covenant children are saved. I am saying that the Scripture gives us. I don't make things up. I don't decide my own doctrine. The Scripture gives us encouragement regarding covenant children who die in young ages. And one of the great lines is uh, the, right there on the Abrahamic covenant, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. And so that's a gentle, that, that does not say, Rick, that covenant children are going to heaven. No, it doesn't. But it sets, it sets the context, doesn't it? That God says, I'm going to be your God and the God of your children. There is a predisposition towards covenant children. We talk of covenant children apostatizing, and that's a terrible thing. But a covenant child who is not saved has to apostatize. They have to renounce the faith. A child who has died in infancy or in a young age has not renounced the faith. I, I, I'm so blessed by the statement of 2 Samuel 12, 23. This is the child of David's in, uh, adultery with Bathsheba. And part of the judgment that God gave to David was that child would die. And if you remember, towards the end of 2 Samuel 12, David's fasting and praying, and he's inconsolable. While he's praying for this little boy, who he dies on the seventh day, because he would have been circumcised on the eighth, but he's not. That's, that's a big help, by the way. A child who's, because this child's in heaven, we know that. A child who's not baptized today can still be in heaven. This child died before he was circumcised. And what's interesting is when the news comes to David that the, that the child has died, he washes his face and he goes and get, and he goes to work, basically. And they come to him and they go, David, I mean, you know, all these days you've been inconsolably praying that your child would not die. We just expected you to be a little more upset now that he died. He goes, well, he says, I was appealing to God. I was humbling myself before God. But that, but he actually had peace about the child's death. And here's his peace, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now when he says, I shall go to him, what's he referring to? He's going where the child is. David's going to heaven, the child is in heaven. So while we do not have a specific statement in the Bible promising that all covenant children who die, uh, will, you know, particularly in infancy, 
who've not that they'll go to heaven. One hundred percent of the biblical data is in that direction. We have the strongest comfort and confidence to trust the Lord for little children. Some of us, many of us, have lost children in miscarriage. That's a tough deal. Uh, it's even tougher to have a, a child who's, who's, who, who comes into the world and is not alive. Or a little child. Some of you had the grief of little baby children who died. We have strong confidence. So how are they saved if they can't believe? They are saved apart from having exercised saving faith by the special calling of God and the mysterious workings of the Holy Spirit. Now the divines can't go further than that. But they can go that far. The child has to, they're, they're, they, have, they have original sin. They, they have imputed guilt from Adam. They have their corrupt little natures. They're born of the world as sinners. They have to be born again. They are born again apart from faith. And we trust the same thing for children who are not able to exercise saving faith in other ways. Very interesting paragraph the divines gave. One more paragraph and we'll be done. There's no other way to be saved than to be called by Jesus. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word, so they may get get the general call, and may have common operations of the spirit. They find it interesting. They're morally affected. They they start coming to church for a while. They buy a big Bible with a Bible cover with a handle on it so they can hit people with it. And they memorize the hymns. Dr. Boyce would tell the story of a man who was a serial killer, and he was executed for being a serial killer. And... uh, he read the guy's biography in the paper, and he started off a neo-Nazi. He was a, uh, you know, this and that. He was, an, and then, like in the middle of his paragraph, he was an evangelical Christian. And oh, and then he joined the Marxists. And he's like, "Did you say he's an evangelical Christian?" <laughs> and he probably looked like one. He probably, sat, you know, but but as Jonathan Edwards explored so helpfully in his books. There can be effects on us through the Holy Spirit that are not saving. And, of course, Jesus in his parable of the soils says it's the test of perseverance. You think of the, the seed that fell on the, it's in Matthew 13, the seed that fell on the shallow soil, and it sprang up quickly. Jesus says it's the person who has great enthusiasm, but when the sun came and beat on it, it died. Jesus says it's the person who has a joyful faith until persecution comes and they fall away. That is not a true believer, but we admit that people will give evidence of the, of, the effect, of the effectual call, but it's not. And therefore, they cannot be saved. Much less can men who don't profess the Christian religion, the, the noble Turk, that's what, that's, the, that's what Luther called him, the, the, the man who, who's Muslim or who's a Jew or who's a secular humanist, and he lives sincerely, more or less, consistently with his unbelieving view he does good things. He's diligent. He cannot be saved. Why? Because Jesus is the appointed Savior. There's no other salvation other than him. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved than his. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. And to assert and maintain that they may, in another way, be saved is very pernicious. To the, the, that's, that's strong language from the Western Assembly. And it is to be detested. No, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit that saves always yields saving faith in Jesus Christ and in his blood and causes us to follow him. Well, we have, it causes us to humble ourselves before the Lord. I think it's my last slide, it is. It causes us to rejoice in his mercy. Doesn't this motivate us to pray? 
to pray for the Holy Spirit. You're praying to witness to somebody. Pray for God to send the Holy Spirit in their life. Pray for the opportunity, and then maybe get a little training on it. EE, we just started an EE class. I did the EE training in Africa. It's got different illustrations, I think better ones, but uh, they work better in Africa, I guess. Um, be prepared. Paul, Peter says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. No, present the biblical message of Jesus, but pray for the Spirit. And then, my friends, you know, Saul of Tarsus, that's the worst guy of his generation. Um, anybody can be saved, even me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your effectual calling. And I pray that the, these truths are enlightening, that we begin to think more consistently with Scripture and that our behavior, our ministry strategy, our evangelism fits into what you teach. Oh, Lord, would you pour out your spirit? Would you pour out your spirit in our lives that we would grow spiritually? But we think of people we know and love who, who they, have, they, have, they have hearts of stone. Oh, give them hearts of flesh, Lord. And give us boldness to tell them the biblical gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.